one who sells his olive trees for wood. The olive trees weren't producing good quality olives. Most olive trees are kept for the sake of the olives and thereby the oil. However, this person's olive trees were not producing a lot of oil. And therefore he just wanted to get rid of the tree and he sold the tree to somebody else for him to chop down the tree and benefit from the wood of the tree. But he didn't specify when exactly the buyer needs to cut down the tree. He's selling it to him only so that he will chop it down and benefit from the wood. However, the sale is taking place immediately now. And what happens if the buyer doesn't cut down the tree immediately, but he waits a bit and the trees produced less than a reverse of oil per saw of olives. Meaning olives were produced, but the amount of oil that one could extract from these olives was less than a reviers per saw of olives, which is a tiny amount, says the Mishnah, even though the seller only sold his trees for the buyer to cut it down for the sake of wood and not for him to benefit from the olives. Nevertheless, since here it's such a tiny amount, we assume that he foregoes his right to claim this back and that he's happy to allow the buyer to keep that part of the oil as well, and therefore these olives would belong to the owner of the olive trees, meaning to the buyer. However, if the trees produced olives, and the amount of oil which can be extracted from these olives is at least a reverse per every sa'ar, so now that is a significant amount. This one, the buyer claims that my olive trees grew these olives. Without the trees, the olives wouldn't have grown. And I'm the owner of the tree. But the seller claims, My land grew these olives. Were it not for the fact that this tree was connected to the land, then the olives wouldn't have grown, and the land certainly still belongs to me. So the truth is, both of them are right. Both the land and the tree is necessary for these olives to grow, and therefore the law is that they should split these olives in half. They are partners in these olives, since the olives grew as a result of both the tree, which belongs to the buyer, and the land, which belongs to the seller. Now, the second half of the Mishnah discusses a new case, Shotaf Nohar Zesov, if a river washes away an individual's olive trees, and the river washes them away, and resituates the olive trees in somebody else's field. And we're talking about a case where the tree was uprooted together with a whole lot of earth, and then it landed in somebody else's field, and after a while it became part of the ground there, and it's now a tree in somebody else's field. So before we even see what the Mishnah says, the Gemara tells us that it is forbidden for the owner of the tree to cut down the tree in order to put it back in his field. And this is a fascinating Midrabonon enactment for the sake of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, which means that we want the land of Eretz Yisrael to be taken care of and that lots of things will grow there. Now, if you think about it, the place where this tree landed, before it landed there, the owner of that field didn't have anything planted there. So if the owner of this tree takes away the tree and puts it back where it was in his field, we assume that the owner of that field is not going to now plant a tree there. Just like until now he didn't have a tree planted there, there's no reason why suddenly he would want to plant a tree there. However, if it would remain there, and we're going to tell the owner of the tree that you can't take it back, then the owner of the tree is likely to plant another tree where this tree had originally been planted, because he does want a tree there. 
So we're going to end up with two trees instead of just one tree. Or if this happens on a larger scale, it will be more significant. But the point is, this will lead to more trees being planted in Eretz Israel, and therefore Midyabonon, it is forbidden for the owner of the tree to take back that tree from the field to which it had been moved. Now, we mentioned that the tree was moved together with a whole lot of earth from its original position. If this were not the case, then we would, re- we would view this replanting of the trees as if it's the original planting. We look at it not just as the tree has moved, but the tree has been totally replanted in a, diff- in a different place. And if that's the case, then the laws of Orla would apply. Orla means, it refers to the law that during the first three years of a tree, since the tree was planted, that any fruit which grows on the tree during those first three years, it's forbidden to benefit from them. However, because in, this, in our Mishnah we're talking about a case where the tree was replanted together with all of the earth which it had originally, so we don't view this as a whole new replanting, and therefore the laws of Orla would not apply. Why is this relevant? Because now the owner of the trees, or at least the person who was the owner of the trees until now, can claim that the other person is benefiting from him during the first three years. Meaning, we said before that it's forbidden for this person to cut down the trees. Therefore, the the ownership of the tree actually is transferred to the owner of that field. He needs to pay the, the person who was the owner of the trees until now the value of the tree itself. But he becomes the owner of the tree. The question is, the fruit which grow from that tree, do those fruit all go to the new owner of the tree, i.e. the owner of that new field? The answer is yes, except for during these first three years. Because during these first three years, the the person who was the owner of the trees until now can claim to the owner of the field, if you would have planted a tree yourself, then it would be considered a new tree and you wouldn't be able to benefit at all from those fruit for the first three years. So only because you bought my tree from me and only because my tree was washed into your field and now it has become yours, only because of that are you able to benefit from all of the fruit which grow on the tree. And because of that, I have a right to half of those fruit. We should split the fruit. I'm not going to get all of them, of course, because it's being it's in your field and it's your land which is giving the nutrients to the tree to grow. However, only because of me are you able to benefit from those fruit, and therefore I'm entitled to share those fruit with you. So indeed, says Misha Zeremer Zesai Gidlu. This one claims that it's my olive trees which cause the fruit to grow, Zeremer Aritzi Gidla. And the other person says it's my land which caused the fruit to grow, says Misha Yachleiku. They should split the fruit, as we explained. Mishnah the rest of the Perak discusses somebody who rents a house to another person. And the topic of this Mishnah is when he is allowed to tell the person who is renting the house to leave. How much notice does he have to give him? Amaskabai Slachavira is somebody who rents a house to his friend, to somebody else. And he rents it to him at a monthly rate or a yearly rate. And they never fix at the beginning how long he's renting it to him. But he pays for it a month or a year at a time. Says the Mishnah, he's not allowed to tell the person who is renting the house to leave in, during the winter, from Sukkot until Pesach. That is considered to be the winter, and it's much harder to find a, another place to live during the winter, since people don't generally move houses or, and therefore sell their houses during the winter. So it would be too difficult for the person who is currently renting this house to find a replacement house. However, during the summer, he is able to check him out of the house, to tell him to leave the house, but 
you need to give him notice of at least 30 days. And that way he'll have enough time to find a different house as a replacement for the current house in which he is living. Rakrachim, and in large cities, it's often much harder to find houses in large cities. There's more of a demand, and whether it be in the summer or in the winter, she has to give him a notice of 12 months, so that we can be sure they'll have enough time to find a different house into which he can move. And regarding shops, if somebody is renting a shopkeeper, his house or his building, for the shopkeeper to use as his shop, whether it be in cities, in smaller towns, whether it be in larger cities, he needs to give a notice of 12 months. And here there's a slightly different reason, and that is because a shopkeeper would often give people items on credit. He would allow them, the customers, to take the items now, as long as they'll pay later on, and sometimes the credit could be up to a year. So if you would tell the shopkeeper to leave, and he would have to leave within the next 30 days, then he would end up losing lots of the money which people owe him, because those people won't be able to find him if he's not in the shop anymore. And therefore, in order that he be able to collect all of the credit which is due to him from his customers, the owner of this building needs to give him 12 months of notice before forcing him to leave that building. A shop of bakers, meaning a bakery, and a shop of dyers, those who dye material with colour, the owner of the building needs to give them notice of three full years. And we're going to understand the reason is because these people would often give people items on credit for a much longer time, sometimes even up to three years. They would allow people to pay even three years later, and because of that, the owner of this building cannot force him to leave unless he gives him that notice of three years. One who rents a house to somebody else, and the person to whom he is renting the house has not yet seen the house. But he says, I want to rent a house from you. And the question of the Mishnah is, what is expected of the owner of the house to provide within the house? If he gives him a totally empty house without any furniture or anything, is that considered acceptable? Of course, if he came to see the house and they stipulated what exactly would be in it, then they have to go according to their agreement. But we're talking about a case where he just says, I'm, bu- I'm renting you a house. The question is, what is included in that rental? And what is the owner obligated to provide for the renter? Says the Mishnah, The owner, the person who is renting it out, is obligated to provide the door. To make sure there's a door. Neger, These are two different types of locks. A neger is some sort of bolt, which they would use to lock the door. And anything which requires a skilled person, a skilled worker to make it, and the renter wouldn't be able to just make it up himself, that is considered to be the general practice and understanding of what is included in that which the person who is renting it out needs to provide. I will but an item which does not require a skilled worker to make it. So then the renter is expected to make it himself, and the owner would not need to provide that together with the house itself. Now, the second half of the Mishnah discusses Hazevel, which is the manure, the waste of animals, which during times of the Mishnah, people would use as fertilizer in order to help their crop in their fields grow. Manure, once it is left for a long time and crushed, it turns into fertilizer and can help very significantly in the fields to make the crop grow better. Now, people would often pay owners of courtyards 
people who are, let's say, passing through a city and they have animals with them, they would often pay owners of a courtyard to be able to bring the animals into the courtyard, which is sort of a large open area just outside people's houses, and they'd bring the animals into that area in order to feed their animals. Now, as they were doing so, there would often be a lot of manure which would be gathered in the courtyards, and it was sort of accepted and understood that as well as the amount of money which the owner of the animal is going to pay the owner of the courtyard for being able to use his courtyard, as well as that, all of the manure which animals produce over there would also belong to the owner of the courtyard. So Misha says in our case, where the owner of the courtyard also owns a house which opens up into the courtyard, and he rents out this house to another person. Says the Mishnah has Zevel, the manure which gathers in the courtyard, Shalbalabayis, will still belong to the owner of the courtyard, and not to the person who is renting the house. That having been said, the manure which gathers there from the animals which belong to the, to the person who is renting the house, that will belong to the renter, and not to the owner of the courtyard. However, the manure which gathers from other people's animals, that will belong to the owner of the courtyard. And the renter is only entitled to the ashes which comes out of a oven or a stove, which would also be situated in the courtyard, and the person renting the house was allowed to use these ovens, and any of the ashes which was produced over there, that could also be used for fertilizer, and that he was entitled to keep, that was less significant, and it was assumed that the owner allows him to keep that. However, the manure which comes from other people's animals, that would belong to the owner of the courtyard. Again, somebody who rents a house to somebody else, Lashona, for a year. That's the amount of time that he agrees to, to rent the house to the other person. For one year. And then this Abra Hashona. The year became a leap year. During the times of the Mishnah, before there was a fixed calendar, every few years there would be a leap year, which they would only decide later on in the year. Usually only during Adar, which is the last month of the year, they would decide whether to add on an Adar Shani, a second Adar, another whole month, or not. Now, if somebody is, let's say, in the month of Iyar, he rents a house to somebody else for a year, and then it comes to Adar, and the beast then decide that we're going to add on another month to the year, and there's going to be an extra month. So it would emerge that instead of there being 12 months until we get to the next ER, there's going to be 13 months. Says the mission is Abra Seicher, the renter is the one who benefits from the year having been made into a leap year. Which means that he doesn't need to pay for an extra month. He's allowed to stay there for the full 13 months, and he pays the same amount as they agreed. On the other hand, Hiskelele Chodoshim... If he rented the house to this person for a particular number of months, and even if it was, let's say, 12 months, since they specified the number of months which is going to be in his Abulashana, if the year becomes a leap year, then it's Abulamaskir. The owner who's renting it out, he is the one who gains from the year having been made into a leap year, which means that since they agreed to, let's say, 12 months, he only has 12 months. And if the basin add on another month and other shani, so that's going to count as one of the months. Now the Mishnah brings a story which has a sort of a case which is sort of in the middle. There was a story which once happened in Tsipari, with a person who rented a bathhouse from somebody else, and the agreement was that he was renting it from him, Bishnemasar Zohov Lashana, for twelve gold dinar for the year, Medina Zohov Lachoidesh. And he added that that is a gold dinar for a month. And then it ended up being a leap year. 
and this occurrence came in front of him Shimon Gamliel and Rabbi Yaisi, and they ruled, they should split the month which was added on for the leap year because there were two different things said over here. He was renting it to him for a year and he also said for months. So it's sort of a doubt as to what we're going to do with regards to this extra month. And therefore it should be split and he would have to pay half price for this extra month.